Hello everyone and welcome back to the Linux Gaming News Punch. We're going to have a small, I'd say small, it might be a bit long, rant about Linux distributions today. Specifically on one of them really, amongst other things that is. My name is Liam and I am joined again today by co-host Samsai. How's it going man? I'm drinking tap water so it's going excellently well. Great, I have a nice premium cider, a Copperberg. It's very nice, very fruity. It's quite nice, yeah. So we're going to have a chat again about distributions. Have you seen how many there actually are? Uh, there's there's a there's a quite a number of them. But like before we go into that topic, one thing that I would like to get out of the way first is we kind of teased this episode last time, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So um. And the, the whole, like, the, the, one of the reasons we decided to do a podcast was kind of like, we had this rather petty reason. Um, so there, there is like some discussion. There's, there's discourse in the air about, uh, if people should talk about like distributions on podcasts. Apparently that's, uh, that's a, a controversial topic. So, uh, <laughs> before we start bashing, before we start bashing um, distros and talking about all of these distros that are out there, because we have a, a couple of rants here about them, uh, I, I, I figured it would be a good idea to first start over with a, uh, a little bit of a discussion on distro wars. So, so um, distribution we're, we're, wars, yeah. Yeah, uh, kind of to preempt a little bit of the discussion that is going to happen, no doubt, about uh, some of the topics that we're going to do. So... Um, um, what are distro wars, Liam? You, you you have been in this business longer than I am. Do tell me, please. What is a distro war? Well, it's it's such a strange topic, really, because distribution wars is such a historic thing within the Linux community, isn't it? You can't really mm. go anywhere without some kind of shit slinging appearing somewhere. Somebody is on one distribution, somebody else is on another, and they clash. And it's yeah. interesting because distribution wars are seemingly a creation by users. You don't see distribution developers slinging crap at each other. A lot of the time, they're actually working together towards common goals. Yeah, a lot of the time that is very much true. Like you've seen it, yeah. they have people working on packaging, on GNOME, KDE, and so much more. It's a very tribal thing. Yeah, and usually there isn't this kind of like animosity that, uh, like it is, like you, you, like you said, it, it is largely just a, uh, a user level issue. Like for some reason, some users feel like there is some sense of like superiority to running a particular operating system or particularly a Linux distro, since we're talking about those, uh, over, you know, a, another distro. Um, Obviously, we have a, we have a very, like, we have a pretty strict stance on distro warring on goal. Um, so that's why kind of like, um, I, I got into a bit of a heated argument on Twitter, as you do, uh, about this topic. And one of the things is like, um, there was this, at least I perceived an argument. Apparently, some people told me that I misconstrued the arguments, but there was this, um, I, I read an argument into that discussion, which is basically, should we avoid talking about distros entirely? Uh, or is this like, is distro warring something that only happens on platforms where the moderation policy is like inadequate? Because on Goal, uh, it is strictly prohibited to have distro wars. 
We don't really have them that much. Well, anytime you see a distribution war, I think it is a a failure of moderation, isn't it? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Because there is a very clear difference between simple debates, comparisons, talking about the pros and cons, and actual distribution wars. I don't, I don't think distribution wars, obviously, they, they serve no purpose. It ends up making people just turn a bit mad because of that whole, that whole tribal thing. They want to belong to something and people, some people end up attaching themselves very closely to the Linux distribution that they use. And that's part of the problem. You need to be able to separate yourself from what you are using. And yeah, it does cause people to go a bit crazy when they talk about something they don't like in a distribution and somebody else comes along who's like a super mega fan. And yeah, it, it causes problems. But you shouldn't outlaw discussion about good parts of distributions and about what distributions yeah, I, do well and what some do really badly. Yeah, distributions, like, ultimately, they are tools. Different tools for different jobs. And thus, like, the the whole, like, I would say that comparing distros directly, like saying that one distro is better than another distro, objectively, is often very difficult because they have different philosophies, like how they how they bring new packages in, uh, how they update themselves. Are they rolling? Are they not rolling? Um, and, you know, you should really pick the best tool for the job, like depending on your needs. But I mean, obviously, like in Distro Wars, it's not like there isn't like a logical kind of a debate going on. It's not fact-based. It's it's usually just fanboyism. And uh, that fanboyism usually doesn't have any kind of like, it doesn't have any semblance of like sense or facts or anything like that. Those are not important in Distro Warring. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, and, and I would say that we have succeeded pretty well on this topic. Like we've, uh, in our posting rules, it is prohibited to uh, have distro wars and we've enforced those rules. And I think like Goal overall has a pretty like, like uh, it's probably the least toxic gaming community that I'm, you know, that I've seen. So I would say that our like moderation policy has been like pretty good at preempting and and disarming and uh, avoiding these kinds of like problems that other Linux communities seem to still have. Yeah, so as long as you actually have active moderation and an easy way for people to report things and make sure people are reporting things, I think distribution wars can be stamped out, and they should be. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess now that we've kind of warned people that if you want to have a distro war in our comments sections or something you will be promptly uh uh reprimanded for that now we can probably start talking about the uh the big debate topics that we have so at last count i looked and there this was a real basic count as well i counted over 100 100 linux distributions and that was a real basic scratching the surface type of thing from your Debian to your Fedora from your high Iron Arch by the way to Solus Pop OS which I still have to look up the sort of unique spelling of every time how many is too many is having too many a genuine problem that's what we want to find out have a bit of a chat about yep uh present your arguments and I'll respond yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, in 
My humble opinion, I think it clearly is a problem. Users complain about it, both new and old, and it's one of the biggest forms of tension I see basically everywhere. If you look outside the basic box of the Linux community, I think the Linux desktop does have a hugely fragmented ecosystem. Now, there's arguments that yes, there is a certain strength in that. It does allow for plenty of experimentation and such, but it's also a pain point for everyone at the same time. What we don't need is another Linux distribution to come along. And it sort of pains me every time I hear of a new one. Only recently, an email came in my inbox. I'm pretty sure it was called something like Emperor OS, as in Emperor Penguin. Mm. And every time they come up, they don't seem to solve any issue. They're not filling any gap. It's just people, a lot of the time, doing it for the hell of it. And I just think that time and effort could be spent so much better on existing distributions to improve anything or to work on a new application or two where there are tons of gaps for things all the time. There's always a gap in something that a new application could fill. We just don't need more Linux distributions. I'm going to I'm gonna take a slightly different stance to this. So I don't actually like personally agree really that we have like a fragmentation problem. You, you mentioned that we have this uh, like uh, a relatively huge amount of fragmentation and Sure, in, in theory, there is fragmentation, but like if we, like in practice, we look at the, uh, the user, like the user numbers and the user figures. I don't really see that much of a problem personally. Like majority of Linux users, they end up on like a tiny subset of the total number of distributions out there. We, we can, we, we personally, like, well, personally, we here on Gol, we run stats on this kinds of stuff because we have the, uh, the user statistics gathering that we do here. And that indicates that basically everybody, at least like in the gaming side of things, either uses some kind of a Debian-based distribution or an Arch-based distribution. Those are the two big ones. And naturally, with the leaders in the respective camps being Ubuntu, uh, Linux Mint, uh, those kinds of things on the Debian side, obviously Debian there as well. And then on the Arch side, it's basically... Uh, Arch Linux and Manjaro. Those are the big ones. Um, so I don't really know if there is really that much of a, like a fragmentation. I do agree in the sense that I don't really know why we would need more distributions, particularly the distributions that kind of just change like the, the, the wallpaper and a couple of applications. I don't like, I don't really know why you would make, you know, a distribution to just have that but these distributions i would also argue they are not like real distributions quote unquote because most of most of the time they are just you know almost a carbon copy of an existing distro just with a new name slapped on top okay um i I get what you're saying so it's fragmentation is not a real issue because the the vast majority everywhere you look from any kind of statistics, the vast majority use actually quite a small set of these distributions. Yeah. yeah However, there's, there's a but here though. But the problem isn't necessarily that the actual system itself is fragmented across 
different systems and software and implementations of things. It's when it's the whole, the box, you come out of the box of the Linux community, you see what developers are saying and you see what new users are saying. And it's this confusion on what do I go for? What do I support? What do I use? What packaging do I use? It's that kind of fragmentation that worries me because I get thousands of emails every month and quite a high percentage of them has those kinds of questions repeating over and over from different people. So what do you think about that side of it? That that issue I can recognize as a real issue. And this is something that the uh, the, the, the Linux PR corporated uh, thing could uh, um, do a better job at uh, because, um, um, yes, that is absolutely true. Developers, the developers of like games and stuff, they shouldn't like have to worry about this thing. And uh, I do think that it, the fact that we have all of these distros, it does create a bit of a PR problem. Um, ultimately, what I believe is the solution here is that we, the users, should indicate to developers that there are only a couple of distributions that should be supported, and you should maybe pick only one. In most cases, what happens is if you support the Ubuntu kind of derivative side of things, so the Debian side of things, then the Arch people will be able to figure it out. So I think we, the users, we need to communicate better to developers that, no, you don't need to support all of them. Don't even try. It's completely pointless. Uh, most of the time, if you support one thing, the rest will follow most likely. And then they can maybe, if they can, work some fixes from uh, more fringe distributions in. But um, uh, in this sense, like it is a problem we can't necessarily... I mean, it's an image problem. We can't solve it through any other means except like attempting to do better PR for our own platform. You also mentioned the fact that like... Um, you, you mentioned that uh, these distributions are like sucking up uh, developer resources uh, from away from like app development projects or, and things like that, right? Yeah. So I, my personal view is that people need to pivot over to making more applications as opposed to distributions, cut down on distributions and focus a bit more on applications because they can feel fill more gaps i think and there has been over the last year or two an increase in people making some pretty cool applications like you've seen some uh noise cancellation software there's been a couple of those that have come to linux you've seen uh mango hud which is the heads up display that you can use to show like your your frame rate your frame timings and all sorts under linux there's lots of things like that that have appeared over only, what is it, the last two years. And things like that are great. I think things like that actually help to bring users over rather than, oh, look, this distribution does this thing. I I, I, I do agree uh, in the sense that applications are absolutely more valuable than distros. We have all of the distros that we basically need. My only question is whether actually these distributions are actually sucking up developer resources away from app development. Because the thing is, I might be wrong on this because I'm not a distro developer, nor am I like a super active app developer. I have written some open source applications, but not not anything big. Um, but I have this like kind of a gut feeling that uh, a distro developer isn't necessarily going to become an app developer because these are like kind of like separate things. 
Yeah. So I have a feeling that even if these people were not making distros, they probably still wouldn't be making applications either, nor would they necessarily be able to transfer their like skills over to another distro. Uh, because there are there are problems like actually becoming part. It's as a developer, it is easier to start a new project than it is to join a pre-existing project most of the time. So I'm thinking that it might be that these people are making distros because it's relatively easy to just start up your own distro project, whereas joining an existing distro project might be difficult. The bureaucracy might be uh, too difficult to navigate. The hierarchies might be too steep. Um, it might be difficult to get a hold of the uh, the people that are actually like running those projects. So it might be just easier for them to just you know do the the risk the the umpteenth reskin of Ubuntu with a different set of applications and a different wallpaper. Well, there you've touched on a good point there, though. Actually, that the main distributions they perhaps need to get some beginner guides out there to contributing to them then. Because that's not something you see very often. They they have their their guidelines and and their agreements sometimes that you have to sign. But what about the beginner guides to joining a distribution team and you know doing some work on it? So distro maintainers, if you're listening, maybe put something like that out there. That'd be cool. Mm. But on the subject of Linux distributions, then what about Windows 10 Linux edition? Ooh. Yeah, because right there has been some some articles out there, some tasty bit of clickbait that has been posted out there about, and I'm going to quote the title of a blog post called "Last Phase of the Desktop Wars," which is kind of funny because we we've, we've gone from our chat from distribution wars, and now we're apparently on the uh the last phase of the desktop wars. Mm. So this is a blog post written by Eric S. Raymond, and he basically goes on to talk about things that Microsoft have been doing with things like Azure and the Win- the WSL, the Windows subsystem for Linux. That name always gets me because it's backwards, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Because it's a Linux system for Windows, basically. So. The name yeah, it, is it, so it, confusing. It, it is super confusing. But he argues that Microsoft is going to gradually move away from their own tech and it's going to become an emulation layer over the Linux kernel. And frankly, I think that is fucking insane. That is, it's not in, going to happen. Yeah, it's insane, particularly in the kind of, yeah, that's that's bullshit kind of a way. But the problem is, you once again, you've got people out there writing articles. They're taking these things, they're doing clickbaits on it, and hyping up that Windows are going to be moving away from their tech, and they're going to do a Linux distribution, and they're going to base everything on top of Linux. And it's just, it's not going to happen. No, um, I would say that, like the, like I don't think Microsoft has any interest in moving away from the NT. The only reason they would do that is if it like significantly reduced the amount of resources that they um, uh, like need to put into NT development, and that they could just make do with the Linux kernel. But I don't think that is anything that they are aiming to do. Like the whole the the WSL thing, it's not a concession; it is an admission. They know that they need 
decent way of a decent way of like running a Linux like environment on Windows. But I don't think that's gonna transfer over to you know you know let's just run the whole thing on Linux because they don't need to. It's, they can just run it all over like NT. This idea of Microsoft moving over to Linux is some sort of weird open source power fantasy. That's the way that I see it. On the desktop, Microsoft and their existing kernel have practically a monopoly. And it's just, they're not going to give up all their highly optimized tech, all their vast years of intense backwards compatibility. They're not going to drop all of that over time Mm. to go to Linux and have some sort of weird compatibility layer on top of it because that by itself is such a ridiculous vast amount of work to do what they're already doing yeah it just won't happen it's a complete fantasy anytime somebody brings this up i don't believe it and it won't happen and it you even have a developer who works for if i have this right they work for canonical uh helping to deliver and work on Ubuntu for Microsoft's Windows. Wait, I have to look at this again. Windows, Windows sub- subsystem, subsystem for Linux. For God, Linux yeah. It's such a backwards name. It's so annoying. It is super weird, yeah. But um, it was written by Hayden Barnes. So they work for Canonical and they basically wrote their own blog post that said, no, Microsoft is not rebasing Windows to Linux. And when you go to the article, you scroll down in it, and point number one in their list of reasons is, it is effective clickbait. Yes. Point number two, it is a long-held fantasy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Just, it's, yeah, it's amazing also, that people can write articles like that, because it's just so untrue. Well, I mean, it's clickbait, and in a click-based economy, one aims to generate clicks. If I yeah. may become a little bit of a radical for a moment. Oh, no. Here I'm, we go. Yeah. Here's the thing, like the whole like the desktop wars are over thing is massive clickbait, not only because Windows is not going to become a Linux distro, but also because I would argue that even if Windows is based on Linux, it doesn't make a difference. Why? So even if Microsoft decided to adopt the Linux kernel, I would argue that us people who use, you know, if we are super technical, GNU Linux, you know, we're running the, the, the GNU or whatever, like free and open source environment on top of the Linux kernel. I would argue that we wouldn't actually gain very much. And I would argue that Microsoft Windows would still remain, uh, rather, like it would still be pretty much a horrible operating system regardless. So first of all, suppose Microsoft adopts Linux kernel. G- the Linux kernel is based on GPLv2, which means that it doesn't have the, the Tivoization clause, which means that basically, even if Microsoft uses the, the Linux kernel, they only need to open source the parts of that kernel that, um, the, well, basically they just need to open up the source code. But what they can do is they can still lock down the kernel so that you can't actually change it on Windows like operating systems. So they could still, you know, have it be signed and verified, and then you can only update to the Linux kernel version approved by Microsoft. Which they would, of course, do if that was the case, because yeah. it's it's about control, isn't it? Yeah, it would be about control. And also, a kernel is a goddamn kernel. You you know, 
most of the time, like we could kernels could be changed. Like you, you can replace a kernel with another kernel. Doesn't really matter. Uh, a kernel doesn't do anything on its own. You need the user land on top of that. And what does it actually give us if Microsoft is, you know, shipping Windows with a Linux kernel? But on top of that kernel, everything that, you know, runs on it, everything that is actually the operating system that we interact with is still proprietary, predatory, mm. and bad. Yeah. Like, suppose, like, what, what have we actually gained if they, okay, cool, they have an open source kernel, but they are also still running software which has telemetry, it tracks everything you do, it still is unchangeable, and uh, it's just inferior. Like what have we actually <laughs> gained? Yeah, I would, I would, I personally would consider it inferior. But the, then again, <laughs> I haven't really used Windows in like a decade. Um, but like my point is, even if this was true and Windows was moving to a Linux kernel, us Linux users, you know, the the GNU Linux, the Linux Linux users, I don't think we would gain anything from it. And yeah, it's it's still not happening. So it's all kind of a bullshit, uh, clickbaity nonsense thing that okay. we've already wasted way too much time on (laughs) (laughs) so summing that bit up yeah if if you hear if you hear anybody talk about it or you read some blogs that mention that windows is going to be moving gradually over to linux and just don't believe it it's it's complete rubbish yeah now to talk about an actual linux distribution for a moment now a lot of people might hate me for this because i'm going to talk about the almighty rise of manjaro why it's actually a bit crap. So they make so many daft decisions on their communication has just been terrible, consistently terrible over the last year or so. And I'm just, I'm constantly sighing at the things they do. And I can't believe how popular it's become. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of been writing that, you know, Arch for people who don't want to install Arch kind of a thing. Yeah. So it's Manjaro Linux is based on Arch Linux, isn't it? Yeah. Right. But what they do is they slow down the updates and they basically bundle them together now and then to give you like a rolling big set of packages here and there. That's what Manjaro basically does, yeah? Yeah, they they call it semi-rolling, I believe. So basically what they have is instead of the all of the packages being updated as the new packages are being made available, what they do is they kind of like gather the packages into like a big like uh uh a release and then they roll that over to the user. So it's kind of like every time you get package like package updates, you get a bunch of package updates. Yeah. But you don't need to like re like do a basically a full reinstall of the distro every time they update the thing. Okay, so they've got kind of an okay idea there with it. So you want to be up to date with stuff, but you want it a bit slowed down, a bit tested. Yeah, that's what I assume is supposed to be the point of delaying the packages, so it gives them time yeah. to test it. Okay, so that's what Manjaro is—a very brief <laughs> overview. Now. We've had a lot of problems over the last couple of years, a lot of controversies as well. Going back qu- quite a while, they've <laughs> they've repeatedly had security certificates expire, even going back as far as telling people to turn their systems clock back to overcome it because they forgot to update Oof. it. Oh, uh, yeah, that's 
<laughs> yeah, that, that, that's such a that's such a like clumsy way of handling that issue like come on i thought that was amazing to be honest uh i was yeah. uh I'm, I'm smiling just thinking about the stupidity of it yeah but it's it's not just complete screw-ups like that they've done lots of dubious things as well that made me completely lose my trust in them because i'm ri- i'm gonna rinse them a bit but I was a Manjaro user. In fact, I used it twice. The first time I ever used Manjaro, I, I thought it was okay. And to this, this was going back a little while, but it is still to this day, my many, many years of using Linux to this day, Manjaro is the only distribution that has been able to completely fry the grub bootloader during an update. The only distribution that's ever done it. Mm. I mean, to be fair, you you do have a like a magical effect on computers sometimes. Yeah, okay, a lot of hardware breaks around me, but that's besides the point. And also OBS compilations and things like that. Okay, look, I only compiled OBS that one time and destroyed my entire computer. Okay, yeah, that was one time. <laughs> but it's still like hilarious, and I I will never let you actually live that one down. I'm still not really sure how that happened. I followed some wrong instructions somewhere and something <laughs> major in the system got replaced and then probably removed. And it was just, I'm surprised it didn't catch fire, to be honest. <laughs> but I, I'm pretty sure that was on Manjaro as well, to be honest. So it's kind of out. Um, so Manjaro, <laughs> Manjaro, they've had a lot of controversies. Like they tried completely replacing LibreOffice with the proprietary but free free office. They just tried straight up removing it and only after there was a public outcry, because there was no real discussion on this, this was clearly a move to make money, which I'm okay with. Everybody needs money to survive. But the point is, mm. this is a Linux distribution that it works out in the open. And after a public outcry, they then turned around and said, okay, we'll make it an option. Why wasn't it just an option in the first place, if that's the kind of thing you want to do? Mm -hmm. Now, they also had something quite a bit more recently. They had their treasurer, so who was dealing with their funding, their donations and so on. They put out a very public post on the Manjaro forum mentioning that basically they quit, that the Manjaro heads weren't going through the proper procedures on spending the money. They wanted to buy what looked like a pretty expensive, beefy laptop. And the procedures weren't going, being followed. And so this treasurer at the time was basically left with no choice. And it was a very dubious situation. When things like that happen, you have a treasurer in place. You have these rules in place for a reason to make sure things are spent properly. You have all these people donating money to you to work on the distribution. You want that to know, you want that money to go towards the work, not for people to buy special gifts. Yeah. Um, that's, that's definitely, you know, money and money transparency in these kinds of open source projects. It's a very, very important thing. But that's the point. There was no transparency and they were not following the rules that they agreed. So the treasurer quit. And in the end, the post, I believe, was hidden. And they were trying to basically cover it up. Yeah, the the uh, I, I kept up on it a little bit. So I don't think I've like read everything. But the early reaction seems to have been like, 
hide it all and let's like try to figure out if there is like a good way to respond to it but that doesn't work because by that point everybody had already seen the thread so the hiding the thread just inflamed the problem further and it was basically like a a a chain of kind of mistakes and it definitely didn't look good from the outside i don't really remember exactly how the like events happened and who was at fault for what reason so I'm not going to really weigh on that too much, but I'm going to say that at least it looked bad from the outside looking in. But this this is the point about every bullet point I've got in our document here of things to go over. Manjaro and the people that have run Manjaro have this chain of constant failures. And it's it's not just things like forgetting to update security certificates or trying to replace LibreOffice with another random office suite. It's all these missteps they keep doing. Like, they claimed their forum malfunctioned and they lost a bunch of data, so they nuked it, completely nuked it, and put up a new one. They did put up an archive of the old forum, but the point is the list of them screwing up and clowning around just keeps being added to. Like this whole rolling update situation where they bundle the stuff together and then they put the updates out in a bundle. But what Mm. is the point of doing that when they update parts of the system but they leave out other parts because it just causes breakage and this happened to me only recently it's one in the list of reasons of why i personally left manjaro linux because they updated a bunch of the system including things like ffmpeg which is pretty essential for a lot of video and audio stuff but they left out everything to do with the nvidia drivers and all they needed which called, caused the NVIDIA NVENC to die. It just didn't work. And I looked into it and they were like, oh yeah, we we updated everything but the NVIDIA driver. And it was like, but you've now Oops. broken this for everybody who uses it to do videos or any kind of encoding with NVIDIA. You've just completely broken it and pushed it out for everybody. And then it was like uh, uh, less than a week, less than a week later, they then did, I think, in fact, I think it was in within like two or three days they then started the bundle of testing with the new NVIDIA driver. And it's just like, what is the point? If you were just going to only update some parts and other parts later, that doesn't make you any more stable than Arch Linux. Yeah, that's that's kind of the like one of the big points that I have been... like I have been questioning the whole Manjaro semi-rolling approach for a while because I don't really... like. It hasn't been clear to me what the benefit is because like I've been using not Arch... Uh, I, I, my current installation on my desktop is actually an old Antergos. Antergos obviously no longer exists, but because it's running basically on Arch, it's just, it had an installer. Uh, it's been running just fine, so I haven't really bothered doing like a reinstall or anything. Um, but like Arch in that capacity has been like quite stable for me. So I haven't really, like, I don't really know what the purpose of like these delayed packages is. Like Arch packages get tested already, but like, what kind of a benefit does it give to Manjaro packages if they like they bundle them then it, then they look at them for a couple of weeks and then they release them like I, I know that there's like some kind of like a multi-tiered like there's different varieties of Manjaro like I have it on my laptop because I was too lazy to install Arch once again so I just wanted something that has an installer so I was like okay let's go for Manjaro and I've I have that thing basically tuned to the most unstable version possible because it's the closest I can get to Arch. Uh, without doing a full reinstall of it. 
But yeah, the the whole delayed packages thing, like it seems to be like a guarantee for stability, but uh, is it actually like achieving that? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Because on the last note here that we have about Manjaro is one of their team. So as I understand this, this is not an employee, not an employee of Manjaro, because remember, this is a distribution that formed a company. Okay, because they're dead serious about their distribution. The t- they made an announcement titled, What is Wrong? I am not to blame. And it's like, that's a bit of a strange title for an announcement. And the announcement reads, when you're updating your system and you have an issue with any installed package, your immediate thought is the update is at Manjaro fault. It's a bit, the text isn't quite clear. And it says, no. It is not you are. While Manjaro provides the updates, the result is yours. Mm. Now, they, they mention as well, if you install packages using the AUR, so the Arch user repository, that it may not be compatible. But the point is, it's this communication failure. It's putting an announcement out there, blaming users if updates they put out screw up. Yeah, that kind of goes against the whole, like, we delay packages to ensure stability narrative. Because if, like, I mean, they, they are technically right in what they are saying. Absolutely. It just sounds, it just sounds bad. It's just like a horrible way to put it. Yeah. yeah. At the end of the day, nobody can test every single combination. That is true on Mac, as it is on Windows, as it is on Linux. There is going to be issues somewhere. But to announce to your users that it is their fault not yours, if updates screw up. Manjaro, across all of these issues, so delaying some packages, but putting out some packages, security security certificates expiring, trying to replace free office suites with non-free office suites, controversy about how they spend money people are giving them, and so on, and now you're putting out announcements blaming your users they they have a real communication problem and, and they look so foolish. And due to their popularity now, I think it it reflects really badly on Linux as a whole. Manjaro need to get yeah. their act together. They need somebody who speaks fluent English to do their communication. They need to get somebody in to do that because they're messing up constantly. Yeah, and the the thing is, like, in terms of, like, this particular, like, uh, forum topic, the thing is, like, what they are saying on, like, a basic level is actually, like, true, and it's correct. Yeah. It's the phrasing that is horrible and bad, and you do need to be a little bit, like, diplomatic about these things, because these things do have a PR impact, so I, I I don't suggest them to lie, I suggest them to put it in a, like, a slightly more diplomatic way because like sure on a on a on a fundamental level they can't ensure that every update is going to be 100% perfect and sometimes your system is just going to have like there's something so speci- special about your configuration that there's going to be issues there's also the human factor so even if they were doing you know th- there are going to be problems with the testing procedure there's going to be a mistakes made somewhere and um uh, sometimes they can't necessarily do like a good job of like fixing something so you may need to like do something about it yourself and like obviously if you're just using manjaro you 
probably haven't like actually paid for it most likely so they are technically they don't owe you any kind of uh technical support or anything of the sort but it's just a very bad way to put it like say that okay it's your problem you made a mistake you screwed this up yeah it just doesn't ring right i think we've rinsed manjaro enough by now yeah let's talk about something cool something about a linux distribution that is actually cool I've been following pop underscore OS exclamation mark for quite a while now. Is it pop underscore OS uh, exclamation mark or is it pop exclamation mark underscore OS? Oh, you've made... Right, I have to look this up (laughs) every time. Oh, you're right. It is pop exclamation mark underscore (laughs) OS. See, I can't even get it right when I have written down a document full of notes. Come on. (laughs) Oh, it is. Yeah, right. it's, a, it's a crappy. It, okay, okay. It's an also. It's a. It's a nice distro, or so I've heard. But the name is frankly kind of stupid. Yeah, I'm sorry. System seventy six. I love you. I think your hardware is always great. I think you do. Uh, they do a lot of good things for the Linux community. I think both hardware and software. But that name. Yeah. Oh dear. But. It is a very, a very nice distribution for both beginners and advanced users. And I've tested out their auto tiling and it is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed seeing them decide to kind of try and bring this uh, tiling window management workflow to the masses. Uh, obviously, this kind of tiling window management scheme has existed for a long time. Um, and for example, I use that kind of a window management scheme, but, uh, it's been targeted at more advanced users. So I, I, I really like them attempting to make that a more kind of general consumer kind of a workflow as well. Yeah. That's what's great about it. And it's really easy to turn on and off. It's just a little button on your toolbar at the top because they've merged together the awesomeness of tiling window managers. Well, the style of it anyway, with the traditional GNOME desktop. And it actually works really nicely together. And they updated it only recently towards the end of September, mixing together tiling. So for those that don't know, auto tiling is where anything you open will just pop up somewhere on your screen and everything else sort of moves around it and it all fits together. It's really slick. But what they've done now is they've mixed together tiling with a sort of special alt tab style window switcher so you could have sets of tiles so you could have your screen split in two basically and then each of those tiles has different windows in between them and then you can switch between them it's so clever and it's yeah it's brilliant i think system 76 are doing some really great work on pop pop os i'm not calling it all the other bits it's just pop os okay yeah, the, it's just easier that way. If if I was going to use GNOME, I would probably need to look into this auto auto tiling thing because I've been using like i3 and now Sway uh, for long enough that I'm really used to the tiling window management kind of a focus, and I really like to manage my windows on my keyboard, which might sound a little bit weird to some people who are not used to that kind of a, a workflow. Mm. But um, I'm glad that they're like kind of bringing that towards the more GNOME oriented things. Because I do like some aspects of GNOME. Uh, it's just that I really feel very inefficient when I'm managing my windows using the normal GNOME 
uh, kind of uh, workflow. Talking about GNOME, one thing that I would really like to buck off is this window is not responding pop up that comes up. They've really got to find a way to fix that because if you Google or DuckDuckGo or Bing, does anybody use Bing? <laughs> no, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> if you Google GNOME window is not responding, it is the results are practically endless going back years. Mm. And the problem is it leads both users and developers into thinking that the game is broken. And it's even caught me out a few times. Just is it that is it the big problem like uh, that the uh, the the window is not responding like the pop up dialogue actually like pops underneath the game window? That is what happens sometimes. Yes, so you don't even realize that it's basically been paused by the desktop and you can't interact with it or do anything. That's even yeah. that exact issue caught me out a few times. The something is not responding when underneath the game before I even saw it. And then I was just sat there and I, I remember emailing a game developer like, your game is just completely broken. And then like a day later, having to email back, tail tucked between my legs, like actually it's a Linux problem. Sorry. Um, but I, I see this and I'm not kidding you. I see this. Well, I don't want to overstate it, but I do see it every single week without fail. Somebody is mm. saying on a Steam forum, they're reporting a bug to a developer and they're saying, Oh, it's, it's coming up saying it's not responding. And I'm, and I'm there because I follow so much. And I'm like, are you using no? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, it's, it's, it's a bug in there somewhere. Just ignore it. Technically, it's not actually a bug. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's undesirable behavior. But here's the thing. The, the reason, like, I have a pretty good idea why this happens. It's be, like the, the window is not responding thing. It pops up if a window hasn't like redrawn itself within a certain time period. Because then GNOME assumes that the application must have like hung somewhere and thus it's not drawing anything and thus it's probably an application that you just want to like kill. Um, but here's the thing, like some, like particularly games, what they do is instead of like during the loading phase, instead of drawing the screen again, what they do is they just use all of these resources to load up the game assets and all of the stuff so that they can get to the main menu. Um, so technically it's a game problem, but also, yeah, it kind of sucks because it's not really like a desirable thing. Yeah. They're, ideally they do need to find some way around it though, because yeah, it might not be a bug. It might be the right, technically the right behavior, but it gets in the way. It confuses users. It confuses developers and it just causes problems. So no, I think what they what they could do maybe is increase the uh, the time it takes for that to come up. So yeah. we'll just give give applications more time to continue like loading off of disk or whatever they need to do. That's probably the sanest option because on and I think a lot of this actually happens on Unity games. It comes up almost instantly when a game starts loading. Oh, it's not responding. Well, I've only just loaded it. Shut up, no. Mm. It's just, it's silly. Yeah, alternatively, game all, all games would need to change so that they also like redraw the screen while they're loading stuff, and that's, that's not going to happen. We have too many old games already that have this kind of behavior, and the behavior of games shouldn't necessarily change to accommodate one desktop environment. Yeah, so there you go. If any, is it 
it's not gnome, is it? It's it's however you want to say it. They're okay with that now, aren't they? You can say just gnome. You don't have to say gnome. Oh, so, somebody, somebody, somebody's going to get very angry that I'm saying it's gnome. Uh, th- they probably think that it's like genome or gnome <laughs> or gnome or some kind of a thing. But I'm, I'm just going to keep calling gnome because it's a word. Yeah. And you can't take that away from me. Okay. So, yeah, um, if any GNOME developers are listening, please look into the X is not responding. It's, yeah, it's, it is a problem. But what isn't a problem is the BT RFS file system. You've been using that, haven't you? Yep. I've been using BTRFS as my main kind of like uh, home partition uh, file system for a good while. And, uh, and also, I've been using it to store some of my games on SSDs, and it's actually pretty cool. Okay, so BTRFS as a file system, then. most I, I assume most people are still on... Uh, EXT4, yeah. Yeah, EXT4, because that has generally been the default for so long now. So what's the advantage here? What, why, why is it? So BTRFS has a couple of different advantages, kind of depending on uh, your user kind of like use case. Uh, it has uh, a nice way of like doing RAID configuration. So having like uh, your data duplicated to multiple disks. Uh, it has a couple of other nice features. The main thing for me personally has been that ever since I switched to uh, SSDs, I've kind of had to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of uh I, I used to basically run with a full stack of um uh barracuda seagate barracuda hard drives so all like one terabyte hard drives and uh, ever since i switched over to more ssd focus now i have to deal with like a, uh i have a 250 gig and i have a 480 gig so there's a little bit less space to store stuff and one of the cool things about BTRFS is it has these transparent file compression systems, which allows you to uh, tell a file system, hey, when you write to the disk, can you please like compress the disk block before you write it to the actual like uh, the drive? And, uh, and then it will just automatically decompress it when it's read and recompress when it's like written back. And um, the thing is like, I've, like particularly on my home folder and uh, also surprisingly on my kind of like game SSD partition, I've found that this actually gives me nice space savings. Like I recently compressed my games uh, folder and I got like multiple games worth of extra space by just compressing things like Crusader Kings and Stellaris and Hearts of Iron and a couple of other things. Does it increase loading? Like, uh, slow down the loading speed if you're compressing it. Um, the thing is, I think there's, there's a little bit of like mixed information going about, going around about this, but I think some of the consensus is that it doesn't because surprisingly enough, like still like an SSD device is slow enough compared to your processor that when you're loading disk blocks that are compressed, the CPU can decompress them so fast that uh, you might actually get a speed like bonus from uh, reading these disk blocks in compressed format because the drive needs to like send less information to the CPU and to the memory. But I haven't like actually personally benchmarked this, so I can't say for sure. Like I don't have uh, the hard numbers on this. But you but haven't I've noticed heard that this is just the case. But okay, so you haven't noticed any 
any perceivable longer loading times as a result of the compression? Then? No, no, not not at all. That's kind of amazing then. So you don't really see any longer loading times and you save a crap ton of space. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that like if we were comparing this, like let's say I was on EXT4, I know that the BTRFS file system is a little bit slower than EXT4. So it's possible that I might still lose in loading speed to somebody that was just using EXT4. But the fact that I get those space savings and it still works because it's an SSD, it still works plenty fast for me. I still think that it's a pretty decent trade. Hmm. Okay. Well, there you have it. BTRFS, if you want to do some space saving, give it a go. Now, I want to do just a really brief note about game developer press teams. So there's a, there's a lot of these specialized game press teams out there. And we get a lot of emails from them. At times, it can be 30 to 40 a day, just even from one single team. One team in particular called superindie.games. If you're a game developer, just please do yourself a favor and go elsewhere. That's superindie.games. Just go elsewhere. All they do is spam out emails about each game. They almost never reply to these emails and when they do one of the few times they do it's to actually refuse to clear up information i'm gonna read to you just a very quick email that i had before my reply to them about a certain game was hi don't think we've spoken on this before what platforms will it be on question mark windows only question mark linux question mark now they replied to say hello liam As account manager of Super Indie Games, I have spoken with my boss about this issue, but he told me that he prefers to leave it as PC. If you want to, I can ask the developer personally if it covers Linux. Cheers. Incredibly helpful, yeah. What is the point in having a a PR team that a game developer is obviously paid who refuses to make something clearer? Now, I know there's a debate out there about whether PC as a term should just mean Windows, whether we should just give up the fight on that and just accept it. But that's besides the point. If when asked to clear something up, you then refuse, you're, you're not doing your job as as a marketing, as a PRT. And this is not the only issue I've had with Super Indie Games. We've also had developers personally offer us keys and they said they'll be in touch and then Super Indie Games have either not sent it or they told us to go somewhere else. And it's just, yeah, they've they've got a lot of issues and all they basically do is spam out emails. So just ignore them. Go with someone else. Evolve PR or Stride PR. They're quite nice. I quite like them. Try that. Mm. Now, hardware. Have you seen the Ryzen 5000 series? I did look at the AMD thing, yeah. They are beautiful, aren't they? They are quite beautiful. You know what really annoys me, though? Do tell. What really actually physically upsets me. I am most intrigued. I have an Intel processor, right? Yeah. <laughs> this was this was bought for me by a family member a few years ago. It was, the processor alone was around about £1,000. <clears> £1, <clears throat> yeah, yikes. It has eight cores. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at these AMD processors, 
Now, I know time and tech moves on, but even there, looking at it, their 8-core is the AMD Ryzen 7 5800X. It is an 8-core 16-thread. It has a lower TDP, so lower power use than my current processor as well. Mm -hmm. And it's like less than half the price. Yeah, I think at this point, I have a Ryzen R7 1700, so the first-gen Ryzen... I think mine is still faster than yours. Yeah. It's an 8-core, 16-thread, and it runs at, like, up to, like, 3.7, unless I, like, clock it higher. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Even the generation before that on AMD Ryzen was still half the price of my current Intel unit with the same amount of cores and stronger performance. Intel, Mm -hmm. this is why I'm so happy about AMD coming out absolutely swinging they are madly swinging they're like in a mosh pit with their processors throwing them round. competition is such a beautiful thing isn't it because they've come out there with these processors that put them back actually into focus more people are buying them they're not as expensive as intel either a lot of the time they have more cores more threads and it's forced intel to not only drop prices but try and push themselves as well. It's just, it's good to have AMD back properly. Yeah, I mean, it is It is absolutely fantastic. It both lowers the prices and it also brings up the number of cores. And at this point, we've basically run into a kind of a wall in terms of like single core performance. We can get some uh, single core performance improvements still. But at this point, what is happening is we're kind of, instead of going kind of vertical, what we're doing is we're scaling horizontally. That's the big thing. You say We're getting more cores. But, well, you you say that, but AMD are claiming a 19% instructions per clock increase compared with their previous generation of Zen. Yes, uh, they are apparently now going to be the fastest gaming CPU even in like a single core kind of a you know, like single core heavy game. Um, I did read about the uh, the IPC and the, here's the thing. Like I think it was shown like previously already that uh, Ryzen CPUs had an IPC advantage over Intel CPUs. Uh, the main thing I think was that they couldn't quite clock higher than Intel CPUs, and that was one of the reasons why it was losing like like why they were losing in. The single play, uh, single core kind of uh, focused games like CS:GO and things like that. Hmm. Um, I think one of the big things that they did with the Ryzen five thousand series is that they have kind of unified the level three cache. So um, in previous Ryzen's, what they had was they had these CCXs, uh, like compute complexes or something along those lines, and each of those had kind of like their own level 3 cache they had plenty of it but they it was still kind of split up and if you had if a if a task moved from one of these ccxs to another the cache would need to be synchronized over the infinity fabric uh system basically the the system bus and i think that's limited to ram speeds so i think one of the things that they kind of were able to do is they now they have like a single unified level three cache that all of the cores can access and there are no longer these delays in accessing that. And uh, that probably means that the uh, accessing the level three 
uh, cache is now a lot faster, which means that they can execute a lot more instructions because there's no waiting that the CPU needs to do to get uh, cache moving from one place to another. Okay. So they're, they're a lot better, yeah? Yeah, that basically. <laughs> I, I, it got a little bit technical there. I'm sorry. I'm, a, I'm studying computer science, and I did a computer architecture course not that long ago, so I need to flex. It is genuinely impressive how they can keep doing this, though, because AMD have now put out... This is Zen 3, isn't it? So it's the third generation of the Zen architecture. Yes. And not only have they... Well, will they just be putting this out? Because how many is it? One, two, three... They've got four of these processors coming out in all of them in November. So they're all launching on November 5. But the thing is... They've said that the next generation again, so Zen 4, was given a brief mention because they've been having teams working in tandem, you know, one after the other, basically, so that once one generation of Zen is done, that the next generation is already in progress. So it's just we're going to keep having this TikTok between Intel and AMD now, which is good because, again... It's going to push prices, hopefully, down and push performance up on both sides. Yes. So it's good. And I've got that a question. Yeah. I've got a big question for you now. It's, it's quite an important one. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about blockchain? Oh, I, I have so many feelings about blockchain, but my, my primary, the primary thing that kind of comes to me when I think about blockchain is blockchain more like block fail. Block fail okay well there's a game called town forge okay i'm gonna run this by you it's an open source blockchain based multiplayer game released for free under the bsd license now it says it's inspired by stuff like eve online and ultima online you look at the screenshots and it's like that looks like either Minecraft or Mindtest or some other voxel game that has you put down square block. Yeah. But with blockchain. Yeah, I, I looked into this a little bit, and apparently what they do is they run their own like blockchain and they store the game state on that somehow, and then they have like their own Monero-based cryptocurrency that you can use to buy stuff, and then you're in-game buildings somehow generated, but you can also mine it. So it's a worse version of Minecraft, Mine Test, or anything like that with blockchain, and they probably are going to steal from you at some point. Yes, it it seems like the the whole like I don't know if the the cryptocurrency that they are going to operate if it's going to have any kind of value, but it seems a lot like it's. I personally get the feeling that what they want to do is because they had this concept where your buildings that you own will also need to be operated and you need to pay in cryptocurrency to operate this building. So it feels like they're going to kind of shave a little bit of money off of like from you and then probably they want to like have you mine more money so that you can support the game. But all in all, it seems like it's just the the whole blockchain aspect seems to just make it worse. Um, it takes a certain amount of time for your changes that you make to propagate because they need to be saved to the blockchain. And then if they are written to the blockchain, you can't undo them anymore. I don't know what they're going to do about that. And 
why does it need to have cryptocurrency? It doesn't like because why you, couldn't it just be you have to mine new blocks in in Townforge in the blockchain to earn Townforge currency and conduct transactions in a Monero derived blockchain. That's just but, so suspicious. I, I like why do I want to conduct cryptocurrency transactions in a block block building game? Like just play Minecraft. Why, yeah, like play Minecraft. <laughs> you don't need to worry about blockchain. You don't need to worry about these wacky cryptocurrency. And most of the time, honestly, honestly, most of the time something mentions a blockchain, it's probably just there as a marketing term. It's basically just uh hype nonsense and it's there to just make something seem, you know, very advanced and cool and things like that. I don't like in most cases blockchain is just completely redundant or completely useless. And also I would like to point out this is a going on a bit of a rant, but like this whole like mining based blockchain is like a highly inefficient system for like uh managing a some kind of a currency system or currency exchange. And I would like if we're looking something like that is the scale of like Bitcoin, it's also an inefficient system that is directly harmful to our environment. Oof. Like I one thing that I had to look up when I read this was like, okay, so they're gonna use blockchain. I'm just gonna go and have a look at how much like car- like what is the carbon footprint of a Bitcoin transaction. It, I mean, they use different coin techniques. I think Monero is slightly easier to mine than, like, Bitcoin, but still, like, it's inefficient. So if you want to conduct one Bitcoin transaction, that has the same carbon footprint, which can be kind of correlated to energy usage, as 709,000 Visa transactions. Wow. And And the Bitcoin blockchain, it uses... Nearly as much energy as the entire Czech Republic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and and some people think it's the future. Yeah, it it makes no sense. Like, I I, I would say that anybody that, like, really advocates for this as the primary method of handling currency, I think they're an active, like, they're just terrorizing the environment. They're just a harmful individual that is... You know, they're advancing climate change for a system that is basically like like it's a it's a slot machine that we're that they're treating as like legitimate currency. I don't understand it, and I have probably pissed off so many <laughs> like blockchain and cryptocurrency fans, but I don't care. Just take your cryptos and your blockchains and take them the hell out because I don't want any of it. Just take it <laughs> take it away from here. Well, there you have it. The blockchain is killing the For sure. Well, we're going to end it on another gaming note, but on something a bit more positive, because we like positivity. So, what is the best Linux game that you've played recently? I mean, I I still kept on... I've wrapped up uh, the Talos Principle, Road to Gehenna, but one thing that I wanted to note was Caves of God, which I have played a little bit recently. So So that's... Caves of Quad is the it's a roguelike, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a roguelike. It's set in a uh, in a pretty wacky kind of like a I like to call it post post apocalyptic world where there was a like an apocalypse at some point and it got pretty bad at some point. But this is like thousands of years after that. 
So there are talking animals, there are talking plants. Uh, the world is kind of like, the world has an interesting relationship with technology. So there are like laser pistols, but at the same time, some people are running around with like maces and swords and shields. Thing about Caves of Cod as well is that the customization that you can have in it is actually kind of insane, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So you can play as two types of characters. You can either play as like pure humans who get like very good starting uh, kind of uh, stats, and they have these cybernetic implants that modify their uh, behavior so they can, for example, see in the dark or they have more powerful muscles and things like that. Or alternatively, you can play as a mutated human who can, for example, have wings. They can, <laughs> br- they can, uh, just look at someone very, very like intensely and their head will explode. <laughs> uh, they can, um, they can have like spikes all over their body that they can just shoot out everywhere. Damn. Kind of want it's, that. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. And you can kind of combine them to create like very interesting character builds yeah see i've actually played caves of quad myself uh a couple of times it's the thing about it is that with traditional roguelikes i i often get a bit overwhelmed especially with the interface it's usually very minimal and very keyboard centric where you need to learn a lot of the shortcuts but caves of quad takes away a lot of that complication, I think, while still being a, a surprisingly deep game, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it has this pretty wonderful idea that I really like, which is that it uses the spacebar as kind of like a context-sensitive action button. So depending on where you're standing, the spacebar can do all kinds of things. It can talk to people, it can pick up items, uh, all kinds of stuff. And I think that helps a lot. Uh, I, but it still has the option to use like a number of things from your inventory to do different actions. But it's definitely a lot more approachable than uh, your average uh, roguelikes. Yeah. And Code Squad is actually going through something of a user interface overhaul, actually, isn't it? Uh, yes, yes. I haven't personally like tried the new interface too much. And I don't really know how much it's going to affect the gameplay parts, but it is definitely being modernized. Yeah, I'm quite excited for that because I've seen a couple of shots of the interface, which if you own Caves of Quad, you can actually try it right now. You just have to go into the options and tick a couple of the experimental bits. And yeah, it's it's starting to look real nice. It's If you like roguelikes, it's definitely one to check out, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And it has like so, like I can't tr- stress this enough. It has so interesting lore. Like, the lore parts of the game, very good. It has, like, these in-game books that you can read, uh, which kind of are fun to read. And there are so many interesting characters and places to go. And I, it's just the best roguelike I've played. That is some pretty high praise. It is. Wow. But it's well-deserved as well. I have no doubt. So how about you? What have you been playing? Well, here's the thing. I've obviously been playing a lot of Crusader Kings 3 because it's... Fantastic. And I'm kind of amazed at actually being able to understand it because I tried Crusader Kings 2. I've tried Europa Universalis. I've tried a couple of the other grand strategy games that Paradox Development Studios and Paradox Interactive have made. And apart from Stellaris, 
they all confused the crap out of me. But Crusader Kings 3 feels like such a different breed. Yeah, it's it's definitely a very interesting one. I, I couldn't quite figure out Crusader Kings 2. I've played Hearts of Iron 4, I've played Stellaris, I've played Imperator. Um, the Crusader Kings 2 was always a little bit too tough, but I feel like I've also played a little bit of Crusader Kings 3. Uh, and by little bit, I mean, let me Come see. On. How many hours? 14, 14 hours. That's basically yeah. nothing. Yeah. Um, but it's like, it hides information in a very, like, kind of effective and, uh, nice way where it never seems like the, the, the interface never overwhelms you, but there's still, like, kind of, uh, a, a complexity that arises from the interactions of the relatively few, relatively simple, gameplay mechanics that it does provide you. It's the tooltip system that impressed me the most about Crusader Kings 3, because it's so simple, but so clever at the same time. You can just hover over all these different words, and it's a configurable setting as well, but you can the default is where you hover over a word, it'll have a tooltip pop up, but then if you keep it there, it will then stick. So then you can hover over a word in that tooltip to bring up another one. And it's, you've got access to so much clean and clear information everywhere, spread out across everywhere, that you don't get a, a lot of chances to actually be confused. And their actual tutorial introduction, I thought, was laid out really nicely as well. And the fact that it then flows into a full game and you just carry on from where the tutorial ends. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, it's a, it's a very, very nice system. I personally... what end up happening with me is I started the tutorial but then I kind of just left it uh, in the middle of it but I eventually went back and I did the whole like I managed to unify Ireland into a single kingdom it was pretty cool which is I think that's the aim of the tutorial as well you start out in Ireland and, yeah. and it's kind yeah. of like it teaches you the gameplay mechanics and then you can you know go and unify Ireland. Now there's one more game that I want to speak about for a moment I touching on a subject we spoke about before with cloud gaming because i'm i'm a fan of stadia okay mm-hmm. use it quite regularly even though i have lots of reservations about how google's can handle it and so on but i've been playing assassin's creed odyssey i've put about 30 hours into it now and you know i'm not even sure if i'm enjoying it at all it's yeah. got this massive massive open world and it looks it honestly it looks gorgeous at times but it's also so ridiculously bland at the same time have you like not bought enough microtransaction like booster things and like (laughs) things like that is it is it a problem like are you not having the pride and accomplishment in your your uh, day-to-day grind the problem i have is the same as a lot of triple a releases and then I find them, even when you look outside of the constant rehashes and constant sequels, constant remakes, I, I, the reason why I follow indies so closely is not just because that indies a lot of the time support Linux directly. It's just I find they're doing a lot more of the more interesting innovation in the gameplay because mm-hmm. the more I try of these bigger games on services like Stadia, the more you see just how hollow they actually are. 
Yeah, I, I imagine that's uh, well. I mean, you're also we're also talking about Assassin's Creed, which is a uh, a series that has been done to death uh, for how many years now? We're talking like decades at this point. <laughs> yeah, and well, it's at least probably over been a at decade. Least, at yeah. least ten years, probably by now, isn't it? Yeah, um, but also like this is also a thing that I've kind of seen a little bit of as well. Although, like, I don't consume that many. AAA games, obviously, because I don't use either Stadia, nor do I use Proton, nor do I play games outside of Linux that much. Um, so, um, but I have kind of seen this same thing where it's like a AAA game rarely innovates in terms of gameplay. They kind of just, you know, default to the, the, the known good, uh, gameplay mechanics. And then they just like try to shove all of the systems, like all of the, like if they know that crafting is like a, a big thing, like after we, after Minecraft, we saw that, uh, like AAA, uh, companies were like, Hey, crafting, that's, that's like cool now. And then yeah. all of the AAA games have crafting now. Yeah. That, that is a thing that really happens. And it, you see that in waves. I find a lot of the time that, triple a these big titles do end up following what indies do a lot of the yeah time. but they do it in a yeah they, they they definitely like they follow what the indies do but they also like one thing that i had a problem with when i was playing rise of the tomb raider is that i found that they just kind of shove every one of these kind of gameplay tropes in the game because the i guess the assumption is if if it works somewhere else then it works here but it feels like it's not like a consistent or like it's not a cohesive experience. It seems like it's a little bit like it's just tacked on because you need to have this and it like doesn't either contribute. Like I felt like Rise of the Tomb Raider would have been a better game if they, if it had been trimmed down. If it has, if it had less systems, if it had less gameplay mechanics than yeah. if it had more. Yeah. I, I can agree with that on a lot of games because the problem that I find with AAA especially is they have so much padding in them to make them mm. seem like these huge games but a lot of it is just padding it's just nonsense yeah and i guess with like assassin's creed uh, odyssey was one of these games where they uh, started offering uh, the microtransaction booster things so <sighs> Instead yeah. of spending time grinding, you, what you can do is you can just show your credit card and then, uh, you know, suddenly your grind is like mitigated to some degree. This has been going on for a very long time, though. Like there was Deus Ex Mankind Divided, if I have this right. They had some microtransactions that were like single use for like a single save game. Mm. It was just, yeah, AAA yeah, I... is just a lot of the time. Not a fan of it, to be honest. I I much prefer what indies do. Yeah, and I, I it seems so insidious too because like they're intentionally making the gaming experience worse so that you would buy like boosters and you know you you would pay to make the gameplay experience better and they're like actively trying to make games worse. Yeah, which is just horrible, horrible to me, and it indicates that the market is not working because that's not supposed to happen with like our marketplaces right we were supposed to get like better products for cheaper prices but instead we're now getting worse products for higher prices so what's what's up with that well i think the conclusion there is that you should just go and play caves of quad 
Yeah, I guess I should just. Well, I mean, the thing is, I already do, so I'm I'm clearly using the markets in the correct way. Yeah. So the conclusion then is play Capes of Quads or Crusader Kings three. Yeah. All right. Those are good games. That about sums it up. Those are some good games. We don't need any silly blockchain. Manjaro yeah. pretty much sucks. Pop, yeah, kind of, yeah. Pop OS is cool. I like that. That's a bad name, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The spelling gets me every time. Every time. Um, mm. Windows is not going to basically become some sort of weird Linux distribution. It's not going to happen. Yes, and even if it did... It's still still not necessarily like a an objectively good and useful thing for us. Yeah. Too many distributions, it's a problem in some ways and other ways not a problem. And distribution wars, well, they're just pathetic. Yeah, don't do them. That about sums up an hour and a half of our chat today in about one minute. All right. Yes. Nice. Well, that is episode 23, our rant about Linux distributions, Windows and all sorts. Yeah, we had a lot of topics to cover today. Yeah. We'll probably go for a slightly shorter list next time. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, if anyone's actually listening to this point, I'll be honest, you deserve a cookie. If you have any ideas on things we should rant about, let us know anywhere. YouTube, on the Gaming on Linux website, across IRC, Discord, Telegram, anywhere. Just tell us ideas that you want us to rant about, have a little chat about. And if we find it interesting, we will. Yes, and compliment my laughter more. I like that. No, no, see, clearly my laughter is the best. See, I just did it then. But but they they, they complimented my laughter. I know. Which means that for this this show to be productive, like for this show to be profitable, you need to make me laugh more. (laughs) We're going to just turn this into a clown show soon enough. (laughs) Well, on that bombshell, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for listening. Yes, thank you very much. Goodbye. Good night.